Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today I'm joined by Jane Gulliford Lowe's, um, who is a member of the Independent Company, um, um, a, a brilliant historian in her own right, and Jane, you've been doing all sorts of things, haven't you? Because you're doing fascinating stuff on the on the Commando Raids in the Lefoto Islands at the moment. Um, you're also working on on LMF, lacking moral fibre within the RF Bomber Command. But today we're talking about mine laying operations, aerial mine laying operations, uh, and I just think that's such a fascinating subject and something that we've that we've never tackled. You know, generally speaking, I think we just—I mean, I know it's bomber commander doing mine laying as well, but 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 we've never really done much on coastal command. And why is it that coastal command gets so little attention when it's riddled with mosquitoes and bow fighters and and you know attacking german convoys off norway and doing really really fascinating stuff i mean why don't we know more about it it's bizarre isn't it coastal command is a massively exciting topic i think but yes you're right it's been very much overlooked as has um mine laying and that's one of the, the reasons why i wanted to to study it because there's just a complete dearth of literature out there about the topic and yet it's it's a really important part of what Bomber Command were doing and, and quite a big part of what they were doing throughout the war. So we're talking about a campaign which began in April 1940 and continued right up until May 45. And nobody talks about it. Are they, are they part of the kind of mining of the leads in, uh, off Norway? Is that, is, that, is that aerial operations or is that just or is that naval operations? Basically from, um, from Biscay, from outside the uh, German submarine bases um, in Biscay on the Atlantic coast of France, right up around the Frisian Islands, right around Denmark, off the coast of Norway and right into the Baltic. So it covers a really, really vast area. And, and I suppose my, mines are, are really, really useful, aren't they? Because a lot, all these places, there's lots of narrow channels, aren't there? Perhaps perhaps less so in the Biscay. But, but, exactly but, but Well, no, there is, because you've got the Gironde, haven't you? There's sort of long rivers and, you know, wide rivers from, which, you know, um, and inland ports. I mean, you think of sort of places like, you know, Rotterdam and stuff, you know, they, they you know. And all around the Dutch coast, you've got all those islands, haven't you? And again, you've got these little narrow shipping channels. And then you've got the fjords in Norway. So it absolutely, you know, lobbing a whole load of mines at the entrance of these places is presumably exactly what they're trying to do, isn't it? Exactly. And it's got to be pinpoint operations. It's not just a question of, you know, turning up and bombing within, you know, four or five square miles like Bomber Command would do right. on their bombing ops. It's got to be absolute pinpoint because you are looking to target harbours, you are looking to target shipping lanes, you are looking to target estuaries, canals, etc. It's not just a random sort of area. You've got to do it absolutely pinpoint to target ships coming through or submarines or barges, whatever. And the mines have to be laid with pinpoint accuracy. And that means in the early days in particular that they are laid from extremely low altitude. So we're talking two or three for maybe 500 feet at first. So it's incredibly dangerous. 
And if you can't pinpoint your location to drop your mines, you don't just randomly drop them in the sea and head home again. You have to bring them home again with you because these are very, very expensive, very technical pieces of kit and they will be used again. Okay, well, let's, let's let's talk about these mines. So what so what are the you know because when I think mines and bobbing around the sea, I think of a big sphere that looks like a sort of coronavirus with sort of pointy bits on, and you kind of you're hoping that someone's going to bang into it, but actually they're not all like that, are they? And some of them have weights on them, and and they they they're, they're lurking just below the surface and all this kind of stuff. So so what kind of mines are there, and 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 how are they? So and how are they carrying about the, naval mines? Okay, so 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 what are, what are, what are, what are air mines? What do they look like? What, what are they? How do they operate? How do you lay them? They're not the big floaty pointy things that we see in all the war films bobbing around next to life rafts of downed airmen. That's not what we're talking about. An air-laid mine is a very technical piece of kit. You're talking about um, a large cylindrical object, maybe two, two and a half metres long. Right. At one end, it will have a parachute cap fitted to it and it is dropped from a bomber from an aircraft in such a way that it will hit the water vertically. Right. So the parachute is designed to slow down its rate of ascent so that it enters the water without breaking up, basically. And it is designed to sink to the bottom, to lie on the seabed or the harbour floor or whatever. Right. And these are really, really clever bits of kit because they are, you can have acoustic mines, which are triggered by the noise of the engines of passing ships. Okay. You have magnetic mines, which are triggered by the passing overhead of a large metal object. What? So they'll then come up from the surface and they'll go go, like a big magnet? Uh, Not quite. No, they stay where they are. Uh, They're so sensitive that they're actually triggered um, by by motion or by the magnetic waves or, or by acoustics, the acoustics of engines. When they lie on the, on the seabed, they have a little valve on them, which once it's exposed to salt water, that valve basically dissolves and salt water comes in and it operates a triggering mechanism on the mine, which then basically arms it. So that's why you can, you're can you able to bring your, your mine home again if you haven't laid it, because it's not armed until it's actually lying on the seafloor. So incredibly, incredibly technical bits of kit. And they're constantly evolving, constantly changing and adapting throughout the war. So you have mines which are have sort of time limiters on them so that they will automatically sort of cease to, cease to be, cease to function, cease to be live after a set period of time, say three months, six months or, or whatever. Um, you have other mines which are combined acoustic and magnetic and that they're constantly changing. The tech is constantly developing throughout, throughout the course of the war. Now, in terms of actually laying them, because these are substantial pieces of kit, you need um, large aircraft to do it. So initially, mine laying was being carried out by um, by Coastal Command. They were looking at um, the, the, the Bota um, aircraft and they're not big enough. Um, they haven't got sufficient range. And this is when uh, Bomber Command get on board to basically take over the, the mine. Right, right, right. Operations. So it starts off as a Coastal Command thing and then it becomes Bomber Command. Well, sort of, yeah. It, Bomber Command are sort of running the show, if you like, but Coastal Command are doing some of the work in, in the early stages. Right. But just sorry, sorry, Jane. Just, just, just to be completely clear, you got your magnetic mines, you got your acoustic mines. Yeah. So, 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 can we just? I just really want to be absolutely clear about the process. So, I'm in my Lancaster, for example. I've got my my I've got my my aerial mine, uh, airdropped mm-hmm. mine. Let's say it's a parachute mine. It floats down. It's got a little parachute opens. It drops into the sea. Then it sinks to the bottom. Is that right? Yes. 
And then that's where it does its and then, damage. Then, yeah. And then how does it come? So, so is it literally just a magnetic pull or the sound that, of a ship coming over? And and then it, you know, so say it's acoustic. Yeah, mine. that's what that's what triggers it. So, so the acoustic mine is lying on the seabed at the mouth of I don't know. Mm-hmm. The River Scheldt or something. Yeah, these are laid in sh- in shallow waters. Remember, but even so, it's on the it's on the it's on the on the bed. Suddenly, a, a kind of I don't know a submarine, a U boat, or a or a cargo ship, or whatever it might be, goes over the top. The acoustic mind goes, ah, uh, I'm stirred. I hear the uh, I hear the sound of a ship. I'm going to detach myself from the seabed and I'm going to home in on this and blow it up. Is that basically what happens? No, it, it doesn't detach. It just stays where it is. But there's the sort of force, because of the, it's laid in such shallow water, um, the force of the explosion is so much, so vast, that it will it will damage the ship. Okay, so that's acoustic mines. Yeah, yeah. Magnetic is, is the same, works on the same principle. The magnetic or acoustic mechanism is simply the triggering mechanism that causes the mine to to explode. So it's not actually going anywhere. Right. So the magnetic mine is exactly the same. It's not suddenly sort of, you know, the force field of magnetism is not kind of sort of sucking it up onto the no. onto the hull. No, they, they weren't that advanced, no. Right. <laughs> no. no. Um it's just it's it's triggered by um by magnetic waves, by the magnetism of the of a large metal object um passing overhead. And it, and it sort of you know and they look a bit like sort of torpedoes, don't they? But without the fins, I mean they're kind of long and cylindrical. Yeah, but no pointy bits on either end; they're just sort of generally flat on on either end right. as well. Okay, um, good. Yeah, so they, they just lie there and they just lurk for months. Do, do you know what? I've honestly, I have never ever considered this. <laughs> just, I've just not thought about. It. Nobody does. Yeah. It's I mean, it's very niche. I'll grant you that. It, it, it's it's a very niche topic. But but, but, uh, but when are these mines being developed? I mean, uh, is this is this a kind of between the war technology, or is this this sort of right at the last minute in nineteen thirty nine? I mean, when 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 are people sort of thinking in this these sort of terms? Right, Harris actually um, puts out a specification for an air laid mine um, in in the late thirties, but plans are already afoot to create magnetic mines as early as nineteen thirty six. So the Admiralty are saying we need to be doing this, and it's very much a joint effort between the RAF and between the Admiralty. You remember the Admiralty are going to be calling the shots here. They decide where the mines are to be laid. They are the experts on shipping routes and naval traffic, etc. So they decide where the mines are to be laid and then bomber command do the dirty work if you like to okay. do the laying of them okay. so it's, it's very much a joint effort and it's the admiralty who are developing the tech um from 1936 onwards um who are creating these mines who are doing all the testing etc is this people like blackett is it blackett he comes up with the blackett bomb yeah. site but he's the chief r&d man isn't he and um in the in the admiralty I remember he's working with Barnes Wallace to start a up substantial with. team of people devoted devoted just to I'm sure. the concept of, of mine warfare and early mine warfare. Right. And Harris, it's Harris who's pushing this all the time. Well, he's always been an innovator. Yeah, absolutely. And because Harris, when you mention mine laying to anyone who knows even a small part about it, and you mention Harris in the same breath, they always say, oh, well, of course, Harris didn't like doing mine laying. He was opposed to it because, you know, it it, it was a drain on the resources of Bomber Command, etc. Gardening, isn't that what it was called? Um, yes, gardening. That's completely untrue because yeah. Harris is the driving force behind the campaign from the very, very outset. Isn't that it's interesting? It's him who's pushing it constantly, yeah. Well, Harris is absolutely right for... for, for uh, I mean, Harris is completely right for, for reappraisal. I mean, the stuff... Which obviously, you know, Absolutely. you're always going to end up yeah. criticising him. But 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 there's a whole load of other stuff where, you know, the, the, the old view just doesn't stand up at all. I don't think. 
And clearly, no. this is one of them. Harris was ahead of the game from, from 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 day one, from the off on this. However, having said that, um, when war broke out in '39, the magnetic mines and the air laid mines weren't ready. Um, right. They were expected to be ready by the summer of '40, huh. but. The hand of the Admiralty was forced, if you like, um, in end of November 1939, when the Germans started laying air laid mines in British um, estuaries and harbours ports and were causing a lot of damage. So they were laying uh, mines in the, in the Thames estuary, for example, and this was causing a lot of, lot of damage. And Harris, RAF and the Admiralty quickly realised that they needed to sort of step up their efforts um, in this regard. And as a result, uh, Bomber Command and Coastal Command commenced mine laying in April of 1940. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's what that's when it really gets going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of massive effort in a very, very short space of time to get this campaign up and running. But it's wrong to say that we were that we were caught out because plans were afoot from 36 um, for, for this technology. So when it comes to sort of mining of the leads, and the leads are these channels in northern Norway, and, and basically, there's two ways for the Germans to get Swedish iron ore. One of them is is sort of down through the middle um, between Finland and Sweden, you know, in the sea. But that doesn't work in winter because it's frozen. So therefore, you need to put them on a railway and, and um, take them to the Norwegian coast, put them in a port, get them into shipping and sail them down the, the um, west coast of Norway. So the idea of mining the leads is that those shipping routes are are heavily mined to destroy the iron ore that's you know the shipping iron ore shipping that's going south to germany from from, from but northern norway wasn't wasn't mined by by bomber command it was much further south that was a, that was that was naval much further south yeah you are talking for much further south so from round the, the bottom part of norway um and sort of round the Skagerrak, that that sort of area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where they're mining it, is it? Yeah, and and right throughout the Baltic as well. So what what they're trying to do is they are trying to strangle German coastal trade and imports. Yeah, they're and trying quite to too. obstruct. Yeah, absolutely. They're trying to obstruct um, German sea communications and disrupting this trade in raw materials, um, which are headed ultimately for the Raw Valley. Um, by disrupting shipping um, of men and material in the Baltic to the Eastern Front as well. So there are several different aspects to this campaign. It's all about causing the maximum inconvenience and disruption to the enemy transport system. But what the way that you have to look at it is, is it's a, I think anyway, it's a complementary and synergic part of the overall air sea strategy. We need to look at it as part of the anti-transport campaign. Bomber Command's anti-transport command. Yes, yes, yes. And it's it's not in conflict with, but it's complementary to strategic bombing. So what you're trying to do is to force your enemy trade out of the coastal areas and inland onto the railways and to inland transport systems, which are then being targeted by Bomber Command. So it's all Got part it. and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's so very much a thing. Sort of historically, Bomber Command's mining operation has been seen as sort of a sideline, a minor thing, a job that Bomber Command did for the Navy. But that's not what it was at all. It's part of the overall, well, I think it should be seen as the overall strategic 
bombing campaign. It's just yeah. a, a different way of achieving the end result, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So it starts in April 1940. And presumably, I mean, yes. you know, as we all know, the, the, as the butt report of, of the summer of 1941 reveals that the Bomber Command can't hit a barn door at kind of 50 paces. So how, how is how is are the comparisons with mine laying? I mean, is, is this a skill that they're getting better at or are they actually quite good at it right from the word go? Yes, pretty much. Uh, but it, it it does sort of, it, it varies. So when Harris takes over um, Bomber Command in 42, he has this discussion with uh, Joubert at Coastal Command about how they're going to implement mine laying and continue to develop it. Yeah. And it's decided that Coastal Command will withdraw completely from, from mine laying. Oh, right. I, God, again, they... There you are. That's another thing. Because I, I mean, as you probably guessed when I was banging on about Coastal Command, so I thought Coastal Command were, I knew it was Bomber Command, but I also thought Coastal Command were involved right to the end. The, they How may have done a very, very small amount, but the vast majority of it yeah. is done by Bomber Command from, from about April 42. Huh. And the reason for that is that obviously Bomber Command have got the resources, whereas Coastal Command don't. Bomber Command have got the, um, aircraft with the longer range, which is what you need if you're going to be mine laying sure. in the Baltic off the, off the Gulf of Danzig. Um, and they've got the aircraft with the capacity to deliver these mines. Because so when they first start uh, with five groups Hamden's in 1940, they are delivering single mines each, sending like five aircraft out on, on one night, you know, to, to mine around the Frisian Islands with a grand total of five mines laid. That's going to achieve absolutely nothing at all. So Harris realises that this has got to be massively, massively stepped up. And from sort of mid-43, he brings on board uh, one and three groups. And then later that year, you've got um, four groups, Halifaxes joining in, in late 42, and then followed by um, six groups as well, the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force um, Halifaxes. Yeah, yeah. Now, as early as autumn 42, Harris's target of 1,000 mines being late per month is being met. And already it's starting to have quite a significant effect and disruption on enemy shipping. Yes, because let's just, let's just think about a thousand mines. I mean, that's a heck of a lot. Uh, and and how it many? Is. You know, just to say you wanted to kind of block the Scheldt for um, and make life very uncomfortable for the Germans. Let's just say, for argument's sake, how many mines would you need in the entrance? You know, along that along that mouth of the Scheldt. Oh, you're going to need a that. few hundred. Yeah, a few hundred, if not more, a few hundred to a thousand, possibly. Huh. But what you have to bear in mind is that your even Lancasters and, and Halifaxes, the, the larger bombers, can only carry four mines. Later on in the war, I think some Lancasters were adapted to take six, but you're only laying a maximum of four mines at a time. Right. So that's a map. It's because they're so big and because of, of the manner in which they have to be laid. So it's a, it takes a huge effort. There are thousands and thousands of, of mine laying sorties being flown, which again begs the question, why hasn't this been talked about more? Because it, it's a big part of, of what Bomber Command is doing. It's, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So, so what, to, what, to, 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 I mean, you were talking about the fact that you're low flying and obviously, you know, when you're low flying, that's problematic because you, if anything goes wrong, you've got li less airspace in which to kind of recover. You know, that's, that's why, you know, 18,000 feet, you know, you're, you're not okay, but you can, you can sort of dive a bit, get out of the, out of the fray, then bail out and you've still got room. 
if you're operating at 200 feet, you, you, there's no margin for error at all. And uh, is, is that the kind of sort of, you know, what sort of height are we talking about? Where are these guys coming in? You're talking about 500 feet if you are mine laying um, around ports and harbours. So if you are mine laying around, say, um, La Rochelle or um, Saint-Nazaire, etc., you are in an extremely vulnerable position because you have to come right in close. You are actually right over the harbour when you are conducting your mine laying. Yep. So you are exposed to um, anti-aircraft fire from coastal defences. You've got um, obviously the flat barges as well, which are manoeuvred around because they know that the mine layers are coming. Yeah, of course. Harris has invented this this system whereby if there's not much bombing going on due to bad weather or other operational demands, mine laying will take place. So when the weather's appalling, the mine layers will be out. And so the Germans are expecting them. Okay, so you can't you can't do you can't do aerial bombing. So you go and do mine laying instead. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's why it's not a drain on resources. It's yeah, it's a, yeah, a compliment. Yeah, um, yeah, that changes slightly as we get in towards um forty four and the invasion preparations, which I'll I'll talk about in a little bit more detail. But yeah, it's 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 very sort of finely balanced. So. Mine laying is very much a sort of a, a winter operation in 40, yeah, okay. 41, 42 and, and 43. And so what would you do? Would you go, would you fly over in formation? I mean, would you, or would you, would you do what you're doing with a, with, with aerial bombing, which is, you know, go off in a bomber stream, take off, go off as long as you hit your target. What are you talking about? A flight of six or something? Yeah. For, um, generally, um, if you look at, if you look at the squadron records, it, it's usually um, five, um, but the numbers do increase as as time goes on, particularly, as I've said, um, t- towards the invasion where massive amounts of, of mine laying is required. You're going to La Rochelle. There's five Halifaxes. You take off. Would you go in low or would you fly in at kind of, you know, fly at 6,000 feet and then drop? Is that is that how you do it? Yeah, that's what you do. Um, you'd basically approach it like like a bombing run. So you, you fly at you know, a substantial height um, until you are approaching your, your target area. Then you will drop down. But of course, your technology particularly in the early part of the, the campaign, is such that quite often you're having to take visual bearings because you haven't got um, your H2S, you haven't got your, your radar stuff yeah, until yeah. late 43, early 44. So it, it's very, very hazardous activity. And because of the accuracy required, you can't just sort of fly around the general area, you know, chuck a few mines out and hope for the best. You've got to ensure that it's laid with, with pinpoint accuracy. You are ever exposed to coastal defences, to anti-aircraft fire. Night fighters will be waiting for you. They will know that you are coming. God, it's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? It must, it, it must be just terrifying. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You're doing this generally in appalling weather conditions as well. So you've got the risk of icing, etc. Yeah. Yes, because icing's much more serious at uh, lower, lower altitudes, isn't it, than higher altitudes? It is. I'll tell you what, I'll tell, I'll tell you what, Jane, let, let's let's just take a break there. We'll take a quick break. And we'll, when we come back, okay. well, let's look about, can, can we discuss the experience of the cruise and, and so on? Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's do that. We'll be back in just a tick. Well, welcome back to We Have Ways of Make You Talk. Uh, I'm James Holland. I'm talking with uh, Jane Gulliford Lowe's, and we're talking about gardening, not that kind of gardening, sea mine laying gardening operations by RF Bomber Command. And utterly fascinating it is too. And and just before the break, Jane, we were talk we were just building up to the kind of the hazards of it, you know, the, the icing at low levels. You're generally doing it in winter when you can't do other um um more I suppose traditional bombing operations. And just the extreme danger of operating at that height, because, of course, you know, the Germans are going to 
cover every river outlet, every port with oodles of flak and flak barges and stuff on the cliffs and, and the beaches either side and so on and so forth and have night fighters in the area. So, you know, you you are going into that sort of nest of vipers, aren't you? Absolutely. But what we have to bear in mind is that from the outset and from the early part of the campaign, mine laying was a task which was considered suitable for rookie or inexperienced crews because what? it wasn't considered as dangerous. Yes, as I know, bizarre, wasn't considered to be as That's dangerous insane. or as hazardous as bombing. It, it absolutely is. Um, so, for example, um, on the 13th of December 1940, Bomber Command issue a directive saying that, that only learner crews are to be employed on gardening operations. Oh, my God. Who comes up with that idea? It's just g- general emissary policy. But by mid-42, they are realising that using rookie crews is causing a steep increase in losses. By this time, obviously, the Germans are getting wise to to what's going on as well. So the policy sort of waxed and waned. By mid-43, the policy has changed again so that it was planned that each new bomber crew would be sent on one mine-laying operation at the start of their tour, sort of, you know, to get their eye in it, if you like. But implementation of this policy differed hugely from squadron to squadron. And in reality, very few crews were afforded the luxury of a, of a first mine-laying operation. I examined the um, the records from 10 squadron. Yeah. And are they in Halifaxes? Yes, they're in Halifaxes. They're four group. So from early '43. Quite a bit of mine laying is done. Then not much is done in the summer because of, of the demands of the bombing campaign. But then late uh, because it's summer, presumably. Yeah, exactly. So one hundred and four crews joined ten squadron in nineteen forty three. Yeah. How many do you think got the privilege or opportunity to do a first mine laying operation? Gosh, I just don't know. Not very many. One. One. One crew. Yeah. Huh. So the rest of them were sent straight into the into the fray. So although this policy existed, in reality, it just it just didn't work. So, so usual thing on bomber command bases, you know, you you get briefed in the in the late afternoon, early evening, whatever, or afternoon. And today, chaps, it's a mine laying operation at La Rochelle or whatever it is. And everyone goes, okay. So rather than operating at eighteen thousand feet, twenty two thousand feet, which you're used to doing last time you went to Bremen or wherever. Suddenly, we need you to fly in at, at, at six thousand feet, drop to five hundred, drop these things on the on the mouth of the harbour, and come back again. It'll be fine. Crack on. Well, the thing is, because of this policy with regard to what what became known as the milk run, sending a new crews um, on on mine laying operations, um, the crews themselves sort of developed this concept that mine laying wasn't very important that it was an aside, that it was just a sort of a, a routine, but quite dangerously routine task that had to be done. And it just wasn't given the same weight within the sort of the culture of the, the squadrons themselves. So if you are conducting a mining operation, you are flying along always at night, quite often in appalling weather. You may be flying over simply just over the over the sea for the entirety of your trip. There's nothing to see. You drop your mines what you get what you're going to see there's no explosion there's no immediate damage you come home again yeah you don't know what the results of that operation are going to be yeah it's not like seeing a ripple of bombs is it yeah when you have a debrief from um, a bombing op obviously you can say oh well yeah we dropped out 
bombs over, you know, Vupatala or whatever. We saw some massive explosions, etc. Everywhere was on fire, you know, job done, we came home kind of thing. When you are doing a mine laying operation, you haven't got that sort of satisfaction, if you like, of, of seeing immediate results. So it's dark. It's a thankless task, really. Um, it's dangerous for all the reasons that, that I've previously outlined. So the, the crews don't really like doing it. But because it's been given this sort of image of being a much easier job than bombing, that they tend not to hold that much store by it. And I think that's one of the reasons why in years to come, it doesn't get talked about so so much. It's just considered to be a, a routine task with sort of no immediate results. Your mind might explode. It might sink a ship in 12 months time, two years time, whatever, who knows. And even though there are lots of successes with mine laying from very, very early on, these results aren't communicated to, to the crews. And this is one of Harris's big bugbears. He's constantly haranguing the Air Ministry and the Admiralty to get them to report back the results of mine laying so that he can then feed it onto his crews. Because th- they don't know whether, you know, the op that they carried out six months ago or whatever, whether it had any impact. And morale for the mine laying crews is quite low at this time because there are some quite heavy losses. Yeah, yeah. They don't know what's being achieved. And as yeah. far as they're concerned, it's a bit bit of a, a completely pointless operation. Yeah, I get it. And so that's, what, that's why Harris is constantly haranguing and keeping up a barrage of complaint to both Bomber Command and the Air Ministry and the Admiralty about the failure of the intelligence staff to report back as to what the results of the mine laying actually are. And the results were substantial. Were they? So let's talk about that. So, so what? So, yes. How do you measure the results? Presumably, you just you 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 learn if a, a U boat or a ship or whatever has been been damaged or sunk as they're um, entering or exiting. Yes, that's the primary result. But there are other aspects of the mining campaign and other implications which um, I'll talk okay. about. But first yeah. of all, we look at the at the, the results in terms of shipping lost. Now. The actual numbers of ships sunk really depends where you look for your information. So there are various different sources of information, all with different figures. So um, Commander Cowie, who was part of the Bomber Command Miling operation, he was seconded from the Admiralty to come and work with, with Bomber Command on this. He wrote a book in 1949 about mines, mine laying. And he came to the conclusion that 864 enemy ships were sunk, which is a lot of ships. That is a lot. And it's particularly a lot when you're when you're Germany. Yeah. And how did he come to those conclusions? Well, I'll come on to that in a minute. Okay. Um, the Shipping Losses Committee, which was established um, in early 43, I think, um, to look at this particular um, issue came up with 842. Other authors which examined the uh, the position post-war from the various records that were available came up with 759. Uh, Professor Christina Goulter, in her work on Coastal Command, she came up with a figure of um, 638. I think that was it in the mid-90s. I take her figure as an absolute minimum. So even if we take that 638 ships sunk by air-laid mines, that's still a hell of a lot. So it's somewhere between 638. 638 and? And 864. Well, let's put that into some kind of perspective. So so Britain loses 2,452 merchant ships in the entire war. The entire war. Uh, and, and when you think that Britain starts a war with the largest merchant navy in the world, 
um, and is and is basically sailing the whole time. I mean, there are on average on any minute of every any given day during the Second World War, two thousand ships operating on behalf of Britain around the world at any one point. So that's two thousand four hundred fifty-two just for Britain. But if you think about Germany, which has a very, very, very small merchant fleet and and still doesn't have a massive merchant fleet uh, or, or indeed navy, even once it's you know captured other vessels and stuff, six hundred plus to eight hundred plus, that represents a really, really massive amount. It does. It's huge, absolutely, and it has a massive impact on basically strangling um, the German coastal trade in terms of what's coming in from from scandinavia but yeah. also in terms of your uh your troop transport so anything that's moving through through the baltic towards mm. the eastern front etc also bringing your troops backwards and forwards um from norway as well um you know taking equipment around to your your, your ports um on the on the atlantic coast as well it's having a massive impact and jane do we sorry sorry to interrupt do do we know how many troop ships are lost Yes, I, I don't have the figures to hand, but there are records of um, there's, there's a breakdown, I believe, in Commander Cowie's um, book as to what types of vessels are are sunk in terms of whether they are sort of military naval vessels, whether they are troop ships, whether they are transports, um, things like mine minesweepers, that sort of thing, whether they are merchant vessels. There is there is a, a breakdown of the various different types of, of ships which are sunk. That, now, that's just ships sunk. So on top of that, we have many, many more which are damaged and which then have to go in for repairs, which is then using up space in the dockyards, which is then using up raw materials. So we haven't got to think th- about this just in terms of ships sunk. It's a much wider has a much wider um, implication. Yeah, of course. For example, we have to look at the war against the U-boats. Now, only around 10 U-boats were sunk by air-laid mines and mainly in the Baltic. But what it does is that it forces the German Navy to spread out and move their U-boat training grounds. It completely disrupts the training system, particularly um, in the Baltic because they're constantly having to avoid all these these mines. Yeah, it also has an effect on um on sort of what's happening in the the battle of the Atlantic as well because you are mining outside your um Atlantic coast submarine bases yep. and that's again forcing them to constantly have to d- divert. Um you are also doing a lot of mine laying on the Atlantic coast um in September, October, November of 42 to protect your convoys coming in, approaching the Mediterranean um, to implement torch. Yeah. Um, so they yep. are providing a protection for the for the convoys co- coming in for that. So it's, you, it's a much bigger picture than people think. But we also have to think about diversion of resources, that old chestnut. Mm. What... Bomber Command's Myling is doing is it's forcing the Germans to expand ever increasing resources in mine sweeping and yep. in coastal defences. So at the beginning of the war, the Germans only have 22 minesweepers. By April 1943, they've had to expand this to 400. Oh my God. Yeah, as well as 40 of the spare breakers, those 
ships, which are basically like the, the naval equivalent of a, a flail tank, which go along and basically yeah, just yeah, blow yeah. up the mines on the way, as well as numerous auxiliary craft. And by the end of the war, Harris estimates that something like 40% of the German naval effort is focused on mine sweeping. Now, obviously, that's... That's amazing. That's naval mines as well as um, air-laid mines too. But it's tremendous resources. And then also they are bringing in anti-aircraft uh, guns, etc., from where they could be better employed elsewhere, such as over German... So hold on a minute, Jane. I'm just thinking about this. I mean, a minesweeper is not a small vessel. It's not. It's an expensive... You know, you know, you know what, what is it? What are we talking about? It's sort of, you know, 800,000 tonnes, something like that. Um, like that. Yeah. You know, they're they're sort of 75, 75 metres long, something you know, they they look like a they look a bit like a destroyer. I mean, in, in sort of, or a yeah. frigate or or corvette or something in in size. I mean they're they're not an insubstantial vessel. And they're making these, they're building these during the war. Yeah. Alongside the time building submarines. Yeah, they're being forced to build them. Yeah. So God, whoever knew um raw materials that are being sort of diverted to this effort. A vast. A mine and shoe boot. Yeah, as well as the manpower, of course, yes. because you need people to sail on these these ships. You need um, people to build them. Yeah. Um, so the resources which are diverted from being used elsewhere to focus on the anti-mining campaign are enormous. But then there are also other implications that people perhaps don't think about. For example, marine insurance rates for, for merchant shipping increase exponentially because so many ships are being sunk, so many merchant ships. Eventually, yeah. you get to the point where um, the Germans are quite reliant on uh, neutral crews, particularly Swedish crews on, on the merchant ships. And it gets to the point where the, the Swedish crews are refusing to sail because it's so dangerous for them. And wow. eventually, Swedish shipping is completely withdrawn um, from trading with Germany in, I think it's late 44, um, early 45. That's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, it's such a sort of a widespread ripple effect, if you think about it. Yeah, And that amazing. slots in again perfectly with what's happening with regard to the strategic bombing of transport targets. Again, as I've said, you are forcing your coastal trade inland yeah. onto the railways, onto the road yeah, systems, yeah. etc., which are then being pummeled by Bomber Command. And the whole thing is gradually breaking down and grinding to a halt. So it's, Absolutely. it's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. I had no, well, gosh, I'm fascinated. I mean, I just had no idea. So, so, and do we know about bomber command losses and doing mine, mine laying operations, doing gardening operations? Yes, absolutely. They are quite high, but not as high as you might think. Huh. Why is that, I wonder? There are, because we get better and better at this. And because uh, once uh, we've got the, the, the radar technology, um, we're able to mine from 15,000 feet. From late ah. 43, early 44. And that makes a hell of a difference in terms of losses. And the amount of losses at that point just absolutely So you're not operating at 500 feet anymore. You're, yes, 15,000 feet makes a big difference. Because, you know, basically at 15,000 feet, you know, you're talking heavy flak only and night fighters. And, of course, you know, as time marches on, there's greater there's greater pressure on the night fighting, opera, night fighting bases inland rather than on the coast. So you're again, you're kind of spreading the Luftwaffe too thin. Yeah, and also we've worked out a system whereby we send the more experienced crews 
eastwards to the Baltic and to the Gulf of Danzig and to Skagerrak, etc. They are yeah, more yeah. able to get out of trouble if they, if they get into trouble. Right. And the less experienced crews are heading westwards to uh, to the Atlantic uh, to the submarine bases. But it is amazing, isn't it? Because we all know about we. All- you know, we all know about bombing operations on on the you know Lorient and the U-boat pens, and you know dropping vast amounts of tonnage on these concrete shelters. But you could argue that that's that is slightly a waste of time because they never kind of really penetrate it. You know, whereas not a waste of time. Of course, it's not a waste of time. You know, it does cause some damage. But 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 from what you're saying, it suggests that that sea laying sea mines is a, a much more effective way of using your resources. It is. It's completely. So much more effective. So the total um, cost of bomber command um, over the five years of the campaign was four hundred and eight aircraft lost. Okay, which is not 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 a small amount. Yeah, not a small amount. We're looking probably around about eighteen hundred to, to two thousand aircrew. You're still getting two ships sunk for every one of yours, and and many more damaged. Well, it's 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 even better than that. So if you compare the operations carried out by uh, coastal command strike wing and direct attacks by bomber command on shipping targets so i'm talking about actual bombing u-boat bases of of ports etc and harbors the figures are, are quite staggering so it takes 104 direct attack sorties to sink one vessel it takes 31 mine laying and no. sorties to sink one vessel. Yeah. So it's so much more economical in terms yeah. of resources, both in terms of aircraft and in terms of men and airtime. It's just so much more efficient way to do it. Yeah, clearly. Because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Direct attacks by Bomber Command and Coastal Command sink 366 vessels. But to do that, it costs them 857 aircraft. So it's a steep cost. Yeah. We compare that with with Bomber Command. So you, as I've said, you, you, you sink what, somewhere between 638, say 750 ships. Um, the, the losses are, are so much less. I mean, Bomber Command, we're talking about 100, nearly 120,000 sorties here um, that the Bomber Command carry out on right. shipping because you've got to keep going back. You can't just sort of like, it's not like bombing where you flatten a city and it's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to keep going back to your ports and harbours because your minesweepers, German minesweepers are out clearing a passage. As soon, well, as soon as you've been out laying mines the next day, the minesweepers will be out trying to clear them. So you have to keep going back. You have to keep replenishing your minefields. And that's where aircraft, obviously, are so much more efficient than doing it by ships. Aircraft yep. can reach the places that naval vessels just can't get to. And obviously, it's so much more dangerous sending a ship back to remine an area than it is to send an aircraft yeah, of course. to do it. Of course. It just all makes perfect sense. Yeah, doesn't it? Well, what a revelation. I'm absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked by this. Yeah, I find it just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. It's, and once I started investigating this, I just couldn't understand why it hasn't been talked about and explored in so much more detail yeah. because it's, it was so successful. I mean, even, even at the time, they, they knew it was successful because, you know, they knew from intelligence reports mainly um, that – lots of these vessels were being sunk. They know the areas that are being mined by Bomber Command as compared to the areas which are being mined by the Navy. Yeah. So they've got a pretty good idea that when a, an enemy merchant vessel or naval vessel is sunk, 
they've got a pretty good idea that it's being sunk by an air laid mine. And eventually they come up with this system whereby a ship is deemed to have been sunk by an air laid mine if it's not being torpedoed by by aircraft or by uh, by submarines or, or by ships. If there are no other reports to sort of explain why this ship has gone down and it's in an area where mine air laid mines have been laid, it is assumed that air laid mines are what sunk it. Well, I'm absolutely amazed. I think the, the killer statistics for me is the number of minesweepers that the Germans have been building for the Kriegsmarine during the war, about which yeah. I had no, literally no idea. And this is what's so brilliant about this subject, isn't it? You think you've just sort of got to get starting to get on top of it and you suddenly realise this is this whole area about which you know very, very little. Um, I know very little about Coastal Command still, and so that's something else I've got to kind of rectify. But, but Jane, this has just been absolutely amazing. Um, thank you so much. And gosh, that's given me some food for thought. I mean, really, really interesting. And I think, you know, so much of the Second World War depends on who shouts the loudest, you know, who makes a film about it, who makes a, you know, who writes a best-selling book or whatever. You know, and if if people don't kind of, you know, shoot a line about something, then it just gets buried, doesn't it? You know, it doesn't matter how successful or brilliant it is, it just gets buried. And this is is what's happened here. It's just been, it's just, it's fallen off the cliff. It's kind of... It's, it's, they've gone in under the radar. That's the bottom line. Yes. I think it's because part of, you know, the, the post-war reaction against Harris, etc., because it was his success. When Harris gets sidelined and, and pushed to one side, you know, this goes with it and, and people just, just aren't talking about it. Well, uh, people, there's something to think about and, and something to kind of read up a little bit more. Um, are you, have you got plans for, for using this material? I know you've, you've, you've been doing sort of MAs and PhDs and things, but I mean, you know, are you going to write a book on this? I did my master's thesis on this and I'm sort of mulling over, because it's such a vast, unexplored topic, I'm mulling over doing my PhD on it eventually. But yeah, I think there's definitely um, a book to be to be done there. Because um, there's just so much, so much to it, and it's so interesting. Yeah. It well, really, it's really is. A massive gig. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I should just say, I mean, people obviously, um, you, you know, people are listening to this, so they can't see, but I can see you, um, at at, at home, Jane, and behind you, you've got a big cushion with a Halifax, <laughs> um, a profile of a yeah, Halifax on it, and yeah. um, very appropriate that is too, and various sort of military types and and portraits on the wall um so it's a very sort of fitting backdrop for you but jane thank you so much for that that's that's, that's been a tour de force and just totally totally utterly fascinating i'm i'm blown away so thank you my pleasure glad you enjoyed it cheerio for now <laughs>